Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. Lo and behold, lo and behold, it is Friday. Of course it is. Thank God it's Friday. Thank me it's Friday. The 6th of November, 2020, from beautiful downtown Bayside, Melbourne, Victoria, in a semi-free mode with some freedoms, and uh, it's a mediocre, cloudy day with so much going on. The world spinning on its axis, upside down, right side up. So much going on. This is episode 33, a great number. That was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's number. And uh, I loved him as a Laker. Absolutely loved him as a Laker. But I couldn't stand him when he was with the Milwaukee Bucks because I just, oh, just can't stand the Bucks. I'm not supposed to say hate. Because hate is a bad word. Um, I hate the Celtics, actually. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway, well, what's the big elephant in the room? No pun intended. What's the big elephant in the room? The U.S. election. But we're going to save that for the end of the show. We're just not going to be like everybody else and overwhelm you. Because trust me, and I know you do, you're probably pretty electioned out pretty electioned out from the U.S. election. Um, most important election, of course, has been and still is for one more week, the Australian Podcast Awards. So if you haven't voted for me yet, I'd say you'd best go to the link straight away to australianpodcastawards.com forward slash vote and vote for me to avoid an eternity in hell, no matter what religion you ascribe to. And trust me on that one. And you can vote as many times as you want, just like people in Chicago do. And uh, you can have your friends and relatives and everyone. So uh, get that out of the way. Just do it. Do it. Well, we have so much on. It's a very big week in history. It's a huge week in science. And I'm, I'm excited. You know why? Um, because we're going to breed out mosquitoes and flies. Yep. I'll tell you more about that pretty soon. What could be no, more annoying than mosquitoes and flies? And uh, I'm, I'm more excited about that than just about anything. And uh, we're going to talk about the secret Oscar Schindler of Germany, the Leica Schindler. And uh, I have a Leica camera. I love Leica. I've been a, um, a passionate amateur photographer since I was... 13 years old in 1965 and working at Sportsman's Camera Store, 413 Nebraska Street, Sioux City, Iowa. Long gone for the amazing Rogers family, lovely family. But um, you know that I worked down there. And um, a fellow named Paul Schaffhausen, who passed away many years ago, that was a great friend of my dad's and a friend of mine, introduced me to Leica. I used to be a bit of a Nikon fan and still love Nikons. But um, in the 60s, Leica was looking a bit old hat and a bit archaic with Nikon, really, the choice of photojournalists and, you know, and fashion photographers. And you could get that jet black Nikon F with the motor drive and the long lens and everything. And it was like having a rifle. I felt so powerful with that thing. And uh, I had every possible Nikon zoom lens and it, it is, of course, why I never made a penny at Sportsman's Camera, because my expenditures with the company discount, employee discount, exceeded 
my income massively, but that's okay. And uh, that's when I got my start shooting lots of photos for the Central High School Yearbook, as many of our listeners know who graduated in 1971 from Central High School as we approach the 50-year reunion next year. I know I've got listeners out there all over the world, but especially fond of my classmates from 1971 in Sioux City. That's just kind of the way it is. What a great name for a podcast, the way it is, because I've kept in touch with so many of them over the years and see them on Facebook and social media. And uh, that uh, it's better than having a pen pal, better than having a pen pal. So speaking of Leicas anyway, and Paul Schaffhausen, and the fact that Leicas looked a bit archaic then, and I was into Nikons, I've kind of come full circle and gone back into Leica because I just love the old school feel of Leicas, although it's digital. It's uh, not a film one, and I, I do miss having a dark room. I had a great dark room on uh, Valley Drive where I grew up, and an even better dark room on Pelletier Drive when my family moved there when I went into junior high school. And oh, I just used to spend hours and hours and hours in the dark room. There's still a magic that I would love to, to relive. I'd like to just go into someone's dark room and develop some film, and then make some prints. Um, I had a I had a Bogen enlarger, and uh, that's B O G E N, the uh, German enlarger, not Bogen here in Australia. B O G A N, which is both a moth, a myth, and a a person, a little bit of a redneck, slightly lacking culture, but adorable kind of person. Um, Bogens aren't bad people. They're just they're just those people. But I just used to love taking the paper and then putting it into the developer, the Kodak developer, and then into the stop bath, which had the worst possible smell ever, and then into the fixer, which had even worse smell. But it was such a bad smell that you kind of got into it. I suppose um, I could have been, you know, into embalming at a, a funeral home. You kind of get into the uh, the smell of the chemicals and stuff like that. And it would be lovely until once in a while, suddenly I'd hear a kunk and I'd look over and the door would open. And my mom, who had not paid attention to the sign on the door, would flip open the door or flip on the light and go, Bob, lunch is ready, and destroy all my printing and photos that were exposed um, and uh, not in safe safe canister, so to speak. She did that about 73 times. She she just didn't learn. I don't think it's that she didn't care. She just didn't learn. I could, uh, I could go on about that for a long time. But um, while we're on it, let's just get on it. Did you know that the Leica is the Pioneer 35-millimeter camera? It is a German product, precise, minimalist, and utterly efficient. Behind its worldwide acceptance as a creative tool, it's a family-owned, socially-oriented firm that during the Nazi era acted with uncommon grace, generosity, and modesty. E. Leitz, Inc., designer and manufacturer of Germany's most famous photographic product, saved its Jews. And we know we like that, because Jews are in the news. And Jews were in the news in Vienna this week as... um. Some of the uh, the religion of peace, Islam, tried to murder a bunch more. Uh, we'll get into that later, too. If I have some Muslim listeners, I hope you're unarmed, because 
that's the only kind of moderate Muslim that we can trust, the unarmed ones, um, just drawing cartoons of the uh, prophet here as I speak. And Ernst Leitz II, the steely-eyed Protestant patriarch who headed the closely held firm as the Holocaust loomed across Europe, acted in such a way as to earn the title the photography industry's Oskar Schindler. Did you know as soon as Adolf Hitler was named Chancellor of Germany in 1933, Ernst Leitz II began receiving frantic calls, frantic calls from Jewish associates asking for his help in getting them and their families out of the country, the smart ones, not the stupid ones that stayed and said, oh, everything will work out just fine. Just like, you know, Neville Chamberlain appeasing Germany. Oh, it'll work out just fine. Anyway, as Christians, Leitz and his family were immune to the Nazi Germany's Nuremberg Laws, which restricted the movement of Jews and limited their professional activities. To help his Jewish workers and colleagues, Leitz quietly, shh, quietly, established what has become known among historians of the Holocaust as, quote, the Leica Freedom Train, end quote, a covert means of allowing Jews to leave Germany in the guise of Leitz employees being assigned overseas. Employees, retailers, family members, even friends of family members were, quote unquote, assigned to Leitz sales offices in France, Britain, Hong Kong, and the USA. Leitz's activities intensified after the Kristallnacht of November 1938, during which synagogues and Jewish shops were burned across Germany. Before long, German employees, quote-unquote, were disembarking from the ocean liner Bremen at a New York pier and making their way to the Manhattan office of Lights, Inc., where executives quickly found them jobs in the photographic industry. Each new arrival had around his or her neck the symbol of freedom, a brand spanking new Leica camera. Great disguise. The refugees were paid a stipend until they could find work. Out of this migration came designers, repair technicians, salespeople, marketers, and writers for the photographic press. Keeping the story quiet, the Leica Freedom Train was at its height in 1938 and early 39, delivering groups of refugees to New York every few weeks. Then, with the invasion of Poland on September 1st, 1939, Germany closed its borders. By that time, hundreds of endangered Jews had escaped to America thanks to the Leitz's efforts. How did Ernst Leitz II and his staff get away with it? Well, Leitz Inc. was an internationally recognized brand that reflected credit on the newly resurgent Reich. The company produced cameras, rangefinders, and other optical systems for the German military, and also the Nazi government desperately needed hard currency from abroad. The Benjamins, the cash, need the money. And Leitz's single biggest market for optical goods was the USA. Even so, members of the Leitz family and firm suffered for their good works. A top executive, Alfred Turk, was jailed for working to help Jews and freed only after the payment of a large bribe. Leitz's daughter, Elsie Kuhn Leitz, was imprisoned by the Gestapo after she was caught at the border helping Jewish women cross into Switzerland. She was eventually freed but endured rough treatment in the course of questioning and also fell under suspicion when she attempted to improve the living conditions of almost 800 Ukrainian slave laborers, all of them women, 
who'd been assigned to work in the plant during the 1940s. Now, after the war, Kuhn Leitz received numerous honors for humanitarian efforts, among them the Officer d'Honoré de Pomme Académique from France in 1965 and the Aristide Briand Medal from the European Academy in the 1970s. Well, why has no one told this amazing story until now? And in fact, I only found it from my amazing cousin, Michael Orlikoff, who sent it to me from Arizona. Well, according to the late Norman Lipton, a freelance writer and editor, the Lights family wanted zero publicity for its heroic efforts. Only after the last member of the Lights family was dead did the Like of Freedom train finally come to light. And it's now the subject of a book called The Greatest Invention of the Lights Family, The Like of Freedom Train by Frank Daba Smith, who's a California-born rabbi currently living in England. I find this absolutely fascinating, and I do look at my camera in a completely different way now every time that I pick it up. And uh, I think that's very, very special. And I do take it personally, as I did this past week when Vienna was the site of mass shooting from Islamic fundamentalists, the trash that Europe took in when everyone knows you're supposed to take the trash out. And um, that part of Islam that does not assimilate with the rest of the world, most Muslims being peace-loving, most, but an endemic part of that religion that... um, just wants to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth, as most people have since day one. And yes, uh, that's a part of the podcast that will not get ignored. Now, that's a bit of bit of amazing, bit of amazing history there. And uh, no, I'm not putting off the elephant in the room till the end of the show. I've already told you I am. But speaking of politics in a more generic way, I kind of like to explain something that I really discovered in my own history. And it goes back to 1960, the 8th of November, 1960, actually. And uh, that was the election when JFK, who ruined convertible cars forever, uh, narrowly defeated Richard Nixon. Now, a couple months beforehand, in a uh, uh, geography class, or uh, I know it wasn't political science because I was, you know, seven years old, but I think it was the geography class at uh, Lincoln School where I went to school, we were supposed to write letters to politicians, and I wrote to both JFK and to Richard Nixon, and uh, hand-wrote them, and Mom posted those letters, and uh, I assume they got there. The Postal Service wasn't uh, under suspicion in 1960. Anyway, to make a long story short, not long before the election, I got a letter from Richard Nixon on his personal stationery. And uh, it was typed, and it was signed. So it wasn't like a form letter. So it was an actual letter. I don't know if Richard Nixon typed it. I'm sure he had, you know, Mary Elizabeth Woods or a secretary of the day. Somebody typed it up, but it was typed up to me and signed to me. And um, at that point, um, I was just overwhelmed. And um, that cemented my interest in both politics and Richard Nixon and the Republican Party. Died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. My firm belief. 
Well, I do love that voice of FDR, even though I couldn't stand FDR. Going to still keep that on there. So today in history, well, we're going to go back to 1528. Shipwrecked Spanish conquistador Elvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca becomes the first known European to set foot in Texas. And we all love Texas. Texas is a good place. So I'll bet Mr. De Vaca liked it. In 1534, Zealand was hit by a heavy storm. Not New Zealand, regrettably. In 1572, now I doubt this one, supernova is observed in constellation known as Cassiopeia. Uh, who could find out what a supernova was in 1572? They were worried about, you know, the plague and mice and, you know, dance of iniquity and, uh, you know, you know, what's wrong with you, Galileo? Oh, I think I just noticed a supernova in Cassiopeia. Oh, okay. All right. Okay, I'll go to work. In 1676, King Carlos II of Spain came of age at age 15. And... 1850, the first Hawaiian fire engine, which would have been nice if it ran over Maisie Hironi's grandparents back then, and we wouldn't have a Maisie Hironi, but we didn't, and we do, and we did, so we have. Now, now, let's move up to 1861. Jefferson Davis was elected to a six-year term as U.S. Confederate president. But just a year before, in 1860, our man, Abe Lincoln, was elected the 16th American president. And we're going to segue that into our political news at the end of this. So it's a little bit of a flag. Honest Abe. Honest Abe. Now, in 1869, the first U.S. college football game took place. Players used their hands or feet, and Rutgers beat Princeton 6-4. In 1879, Canada celebrated its first Thanksgiving Day. They were thanking God that the Trudeaus hadn't come to power yet. Now, let's move forward. In 1885, a sad day in Carson City, Nevada, as the U.S. Mint closed. So people had had coins from the Carson City, Nevada Mint, now had collector's items. Very, very interesting. An election of interest. In 1906, the Chinese government ministries are reorganized as part of the movement towards constitutional government, but alas, in fact, the Manchu princes retained control, and there was little gain for the Chinese people. And we know there has been little gain for the Chinese people. In 1913, Mahatma Gandhi was arrested for leading Indian miners' marches in South Africa. And in 1915, Sophocles Skoulatis formed a Greek government. This seems to be a real big time in history for elections because in 1917, Red October, the Bolshevik Revolution begins with the bombardment of the Winter Palace in Petrograd during the Russian October Revolution. It's a wild time. Absolutely wild time. But we can segue right on over to practical products because on this day in 1928, Colonel Jacob Schick patented the first electric razor. Which guy out there hasn't had a Schick electric razor in his life? I mean, really. I've got a Braun now, a nice German Braun. It's a Braun. But uh, I grew up with a Schick. 
1934, the Philadelphia Eagles, Philadelphia, the freedom city, the city where there's more corruption and government going on than anywhere else in the U.S. other than perhaps Seattle and Portland, the Philadelphia Eagles beat the Cincinnati Reds 64 to nothing. Whoa, what a beating. In 1936, RCA displays a TV for press. Now, my dad, Milt, worked for RCA during the Second World War and helped develop the television and, in fact, saw color TV in the 40s in an early, early trial, as I've mentioned before. Now, let's move up. Let us move up. Our man, fear itself. In 1940, on this day, Franklin D. Roosevelt was re-elected U.S. president. Way too many terms. Way too many terms. In 1941, the U.S. lent Soviet Union a million bucks. Why would we do that? And a year later, in 1942, the Nazis killed 12,000 Jews in the Minsk ghetto. Lend money to Russians? Jews killed in the ghetto. Some things just keep on happening. Carrying right on. This is a big one. 1957, Felix Gaillard becomes premier of France. Felix! Many of you knew my wonderful cat, Felix. The little brother of Oscar the Magnificent, Felix the Magic. And Felix is immortalized on a new Montclair jumper, the Felix jumper, which I will talk about a little bit later, flagging that, what is your podcaster wearing? We're just going all across everything right now. All across everything. 1974, Dodger Mike Marshall, first relief pitcher ever to win the Cy Young Award. For those of you that love baseball and a poor cricket. 1975, Anarchy in the UK, first performance by punk band The Sex Pistols at St. Martin's College in London. Man, wish I'd been there for that one. Wish I'd been there for that one. So much has been happening. 1978, on this day, Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, puts the country under military rule. And a year later, Ayatollah Khomeini took over in Iran. And then there were student riots all over Los Angeles. I was living in Los Angeles at the time in Beverly Hills. And Iranians going crazy then. You know, what is it with fundamental Muslims just just fucking things up in the Western world for people? You know, come on over. Come on over and enjoy the, the fruits of, you know, the U.S., the U.K., Australia, democratic countries, France, um, you know, get good jobs, get uh, welfare where, where needed, have freedoms, be able to talk, be able to worship, be able to do whatever you want, not get bombed and stuff like that. And then suddenly, you know, go go full Koran and um, start destroying everything and, and going crazy and destroying democracy, which is why you can go back to the Stone Age where you belong. And that's where... China, communist China, is headed when the tables turn and they're going to have to pay for all this worldwide woo flu havoc. I kid you not. And uh, lastly, just kind of bring it all up, a couple other events of interest on this day, 1991, Russian President Boris Yeltsin outlawed the Communist Party. How well did that go? In 91, the last oil fire in Kuwait was set by retreating Iraqi troops. Well, 
Yes, again. Thanks, Mohammed. Boxing, 1993. Evander the Man Hollyfield beats Riddick Bowen 12 for the heavyweight boxing title. Assassinations, Jews in the news. Israel buried on this day in 1995, Yitzhak Rabin. He was assassinated by a Jewish extremist named Yigar Amir, who opposed peace with Palestinians. I oppose peace with Palestinians too, but I don't believe in assassination, um, by and large. But I think we may have a special page for that. And in film, a film that I changed my mind about a lot. In 1996, The English Patient, which was based on the novel by Michael Andachi and directed by the amazing Anthony Mangella, starring Rafe Fiennes, Juliette Binoche, and Kristen Scott Thomas, premiered in L.A. And it won Best Picture in 1997. I didn't like it when I first saw it. I don't know why. I just didn't like it. Maybe I wasn't in the mood for it. And um, I've revisited it a couple times, and I absolutely love it. That's, that's a film that I had to revisit a couple of times. And speaking of something that was a slow burn for me, in 2001, the TV drama series 24, starring Kiefer Sutherland, premiered on Fox. And I started slow with that, and uh, I grew to really, really love that show, too. Thanks to my son who heads up the uh, Not-So-Crack production team, which moved to Vallejo, California, and has done F all for us of late. But um, he's been preoccupied. He's a good man. He's a good man. Hey, Steve. And that is Today in History. Now, a couple other things that has happened this week, for those of you that live in Australia or know a bit about sports and horse racing, we had the Spring Racing Carnival, and finally we did have a bit of spring weather. We had a couple of gorgeous days, a couple warm, uh, 30 on Tuesday for the Melbourne Cup. Now, the Melbourne Cup is a bit of an anomaly. The whole country closes, literally, for a horse race, the race that stops a nation. So it's kind of like the Kentucky Derby, but way, way huger. And uh, I was living in Sydney in uh, 1999 and uh, came down here in 2000 to Melbourne and uh, a publicist took me to the races and I made 38,000 new best friends and it was a gorgeous day. I thought, wow, Melbourne's the place. And everyone dresses up, frocks up, as they say down here, frocks up and um, bets on horses and drinks and um, passes out in oblivion and Millions of women in high heels either get them stuck in the turf and lose them or break their ankles or are found face down and on national television the next day. It is an absolute massive piss up, as they say here, where the whole state gets drunk and everybody goes crazy. And it was still held yesterday, but because of the Wu flu, the pandemic, thank you, China, you're going to pay. Uh, Dictator Dan had opened it up for us about two weeks ago, and we'll have more announcements for us this coming Sunday, but wouldn't allow any large crowds, any large crowds. So the only people there were the horses, the jockeys, and I think a few owners. So normally there'd be 110,000 people spending billions. There were uh, 110 people spending no money, and we got a bit lucky. Horse number six, twilight payment, um, just because my wife liked number six. Um, with no spreadsheet, no no uh, hot sheet, no race sheet at all. We uh, put a couple bucks on it. And 
It paid 27 to 1. So we were a bit excited about that, and we had a nice lunch out in the sun by ourselves. And um, a horse had to be destroyed. Horse number one, which um, pulled up early in the race and I think broke its fractured something and then had to be destroyed because not knowing a lot about horses, other than fearing them a bit, they spooked me a bit. I don't think they're as smart as people think they are. And I think they're meaner than most people take, give them um, charge for. But uh, I do love animals so much. And the poor horse, he broke its leg and had to be euthanized. And there's a big to-do here about stopping racing because it's cruel. Because the way the horses are run, it's cruel. I, uh, I'm i not sure what side of the fence I'm on on that. I don't like horse jumping, those jumping things where they jump and then they crash and hurt themselves. I think that's very unnatural. And I think that they've stopped that a lot in places. But the traditional horse races, I don't know. It is the sport of kings, but um, kings and royalty are gradually fading from our consciousness. So uh, the jury's on on that. Because uh, I think the horses are treated wonderfully, but then again, I believe they are raced unnaturally. But I don't know, so I really don't want to weigh in on things that I don't know about. Unlike politics and climate change, which I do, as you know, and religion, and fashion, and alcohol, and cars, and you know the neuron-specific ramifications of nanotechnology and mosquitoes mosquitoes and flies. Bobby, how are you an expert on that? Well, well, let me tell you. Oh, the sound of the mighty theremin, the mighty, 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 mighty theremin. Today, this week in Science Bitches, researchers pioneer a more effective way to block malaria transmission in mosquitoes, in diseases, in flies. This work mitigates a big issue with the first gene drive systems, which is the accumulation of drive-resistant mosquitoes that could still transmit malaria parasites, says University of California, Irvine, vector biologist, Anthony James. Whoa, this is huge. This is huge. This is actually describing a highly efficient second-generation version of the team's original gene drive developed for the Indo-Pakistani malaria vector mosquito, Anopheles stephensi. It figures something in India and Pakistan would, would be here to fuck us up. The 2015 work published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, was the first demonstration of a CRISPR-based gene drive in mosquitoes and updated only last week. What does this mean in simple terms? Gotcha, fucker. In that first study... The gene drive of mosquitoes was transmitted to about 99% of progeny when the parent 
in which the gene drive was inserted, how did they insert that in a little mosquito, was a male but only 60 to 70% of the offspring when the parent in which the gene drive inserted was a female. So what's the result of this little insert, this implant? A significant number of drive-resistant chromosomes are generated in females, thus in principle allows these females to continue to transmit parasites. So Adolfi, the lead author of the new study and collaborator, solved that failure to drive efficiently through females by now equipping the gene drive with a functional copy of the target gene into which the drive is inserted. So that means for you and me that normal function of this target gene is required in this mosquito species for female survival and fertility after she feeds on blood. And now its functionality is disrupted when the drive system is inserted into the gene. So when the bitches are drinking your blood, they ain't going to be reproducing malaria. Ain't going to be spreading the malaria. Still be drinking your blood. Still have to give them a whack and go, fuck. God, I hate mosquitoes. But they ain't going to be spreading malaria. And that's a good thing. And this type of technology is being experimented at UCI with flies to not only prevent any spread of disease, but to prevent reproduction. There will be no more Lord of the Flies, hopefully, in our lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> So you can see I'm quite excited about that. And special thanks to Adriana Adolfi and Nature Communications, which is the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, as we bring that chapter of science, bitches, to a close. Now, speaking of science, let's just go into political science. And I was talking a few moments ago about my introduction into politics as my dad was quite a Republican, U.S. Republican, for those of you around the world. And um, my mom was a bit of a Democrat at first. She had grown up Orthodox Jewish. She was from New York. And you know how deranged Orthodox Jews from New York are. And uh, historically and politically and concurrently. And uh, he used to stand over her at the polls to make sure she would vote Republican. But she wouldn't stand for that. She would go in and vote the way she wanted. But eventually... She came around. She came good. And uh, when I got that letter from candidate Richard Nixon, I thought, wow, this guy took the time to write me. This little fat kid from Sioux City, Iowa, that wrote him a letter, he wrote me back and signed it. It wasn't on one of those um, autograph machines. That letter would be worth a lot of money today if I could find it, which... My mom lost, like, my baseball cards, things like that. I've got some issues with a lot of mispossession of possessions that uh, my mom re reassigned over the years, but uh, no lost love there. No lost love there. She was the best. She was the best. And uh, so that's where several things happened. One, I, be, I became kind of a young Republican at that point, and that was cemented years later during the Vietnam War when the— the draft ended while Nixon was in office just before I was sucked overseas or about to be sucked overseas from the Paris peace talks. Thank you. Uh, he did some naughty things. 
He did some naughty things. We know that, the Watergate thing, because he got caught. Kennedy never got caught. Um, that's the fundamental difference. And uh, that will remain historic. But um, that's where two things happen. I became pretty much a Republican, by and large, those values, the values of my party, which are family, business first, business first, so you can be successful and help others that can't be helped, rather than a welfare state where you extol the virtues of helping those that need it at the expense of those that can provide it. It's the difference between capitalism and communism, essentially. But uh, also, more importantly, I think that's where I also got my penchant for writing letters and thank you. So when anybody does anything fantastic that I really like, I love to acknowledge it. And, uh, you know, not angry at JFK because he didn't acknowledge my letter. I shouldn't have had him shot. No, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, that was my first affirmation. Um, I just, I just thought, wow, anyone that does something for you, you should reciprocate. And that's why I do call out service and thank yous and just people that I think are just professionals and extreme professionals, which is, you know, excellence in everything, um, whether it's, you know, at a clothing store or at a grocery store or at a kitchen or a waiter or a waitress or a bartender or a DHL delivery man or something like that. When someone is excellent at what they do, it doesn't matter whether they're, you know, grave digger or a senator, they, they should be thanked because that's, that is giving and giving is better than receiving. And when you give thanks for things, you, you reinforce the good that that person did, not just because they served you because they did an excellent job or whatever it is that they do. And I have spoken about this from time to time. Excellence is a way of life, is a great way to live your life, no matter what you do and where you are and what capacity you have. And one of the things that bothers me about lack of excellence is, as we have seen the last several months, and especially the last 96 hours, is the lack of excellence in the U.S. voting system. Now, there's two fundamental things that are wrong there. One is the anyone that loses on the electoral college system, and everyone's been on the wrong side of that, thinks the electoral college is archaic and doesn't work. Anyone that has won the popular vote and lost by the Electoral College thinks it's me messed up, whereas our founding fathers created that so that in a very easy system that states that are way too populous can't control the vote of the entire nation. It is the United States of America. And people in very rural states where I came from, Iowa, or extremely rural, like North and South Dakota, Utah, Montana, have a say and aren't drowned out by the two metropolitan centers, New York, Los Angeles, and also to some degree, Chicago. Now, they do have their, their say in the House of Representatives, and of course, everyone has their say in the Senate, but it's a fundamental fundamentally well-designed machine to make sure everyone is represented. Is it flawless? No, absolutely not. But what really is flawed 
is the voting system in each individual state, where some states, the polls close at different hours. Some states allow mail-in voting. Some states allow mail-in voting up to almost a week after the election, where which makes things rife for fraud. And on Tuesday night in the U.S., Wednesday here, we saw the election stopped with Joe Biden in the lead, Donald Trump behind on electoral votes. But of the six states left to count that were the most key, some others still in in uh, disarray, but the key states, all of those controlled by Democrats, mysteriously, all six decided to halt vote counting at night. You don't stop vote counting in the middle of an election. So is that a conspiracy? I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it's a big fucking coincidence. And as we all saw, it has created a great deal of problems. Now, before we go towards the more current events of what's happened uh, at the U.S. election, as promised and as unavoidable, what's, what's most important is that people that are voting Republican, forget Donald Trump. People that are voting Democrat, forget Joe Biden need to have faith that their vote counts, that when they vote by mail in time or in the polls in time with a deadline, that their vote is counted, is kept, and is recorded. And right now, I can assure you, there is so much distrust on both sides. The Republicans think that the Democrats tried to steal the election. The Democrats think the Republicans were trying to steal the election. And there was so much distrust and hate. It is almost unbearable. Um, I would clearly, clearly admit to have been drawn into a lot of this and while trying to be egalitarian and fair and uniting, there um, are trigger points where I just have lost almost all hope for the system to be fixed. And I, I really have no ideas, even wild ideas, on how the system can be fixed. And and what is important and what isn't. Um, is coronavirus important? Every country in the world has been plagued by coronavirus. Thank you, China. China is the one common denominator here that's going to pay for it. But everyone wants to blame the person in power for coronavirus, which is insane. But that having been said, if I wasn't in power, I would blame the person too, because you always attack at the weakest possible flank. And that, and that is something that any challenger would do, would do. Absolutely. And, uh, I think, I think we're headed into extremely dangerous times in the U S and this is one of those times where I'm probably American, but so absolutely grateful to be living in Australia on the absolute opposite end of the world, upside fucking down on the wrong seasons where we're about to put up the Christmas tree and Hanukkah bush in a matter of weeks, but yet it's coming into blazing hot summer. And that's so wrong because Santa would never wear a bright red fire engine red coat in 35 degree centigrade weather you know, basically 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And wherever you are in the world, you you know dressing 
appropriately and dressing sensibly for the weather and the occasion is one of the most important things in the world, far more important than even a U.S., a U.K., Australian, French, or any other election. Because the wafting flow or the vapor of the win or loss of the election will fade away after a while. But the memory of how good you felt when you were dressed right for the right occasion will linger with you forever and in photographs. And you know what that means. Yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do. So, you finally arrived. What the hell are you wearing? It's my ass-kicking outfit, bitch! And it is an ass-kicking outfit, just like Santa Claus, because even though the weather is unseasonable, I was out with my wife running around because we've had um, double donut, no deaths, and no woo flu cases for, I think, like about five days, which is great, which is when, you know, you close the whole state and wipe out the economy. You can diminish the virus. So we are pretty grateful about that, a little bit of micro-freedom. So you're wandering around and, you know, trying on winter clothes, which um, it's that type of season now where all the sales are on for winter, even though it's in the middle of summer here because we are in the wrong hemisphere. But what am I actually wearing at the podcast is, as flagged earlier, my cat suit, my Felix the Cat jumper or sweater. We call them jumpers down here. Jumpers is also kind of a cool note for people that are considering ending it all and, you know, are up on tall buildings and you have to get the police or a psychologist or whatever, you know, a negotiator to come up and try and talk them down. And uh, as any negotiator will tell you, 99% of the time, they always jump. They always jump. But on a more sanguine note, my jumper has a motif of Felix the Cat on it, which Montclair, which we have spoken about in previous podcasts, and uh, is a uh, sporting attire of choice of the Italian-French variety. I just, because you know I love cats, and I, I just feel like the cat person. I just feel like the cat's meow in this. And um, it's just kind of lightweight, a little bit whitey beige with the black cat on it, and I can wear it in coolish weather, in warmish weather, and uh, it just makes me a better person. And it's very versatile, so I can feel dressed up in it or dressed down. And uh, down on the bottom, the helmet-laying sweatpants, the gray ones that you've seen 52 times because I just wear them constantly. It is my uniform now. I pretty much just changed the top. Now, while I've been gallivanting around in, you know, winter coats because we've been allowed to go in the stores and we were sheer boredom after all this lockup, 14 and rain. Um, on Tuesday, it was 30 and sun. Um, my wife has been gallivanting around with some Eric Javits straw bags, which is uh, her piece de resistance of late. And uh, Eric Javits is a New York-based designer who makes amazing foldable straw hats and straw bags. Yes, I'm quite enamored by it. I like anything that's that's awesome. And the colors and the weave and the construction of these, we saw a couple of them in Noosa on holiday a few years ago. And um, my wife searched them out. And all the way from New York, um, which is boarded up right now for all the riots, 
came these amazing bags. And uh, Eric Javits is a bit of an anomaly. He uh, is a designer who, after attending the Rhode Island School of Design, where he studied painting and sculpture, he opened a women's hat business in 1985. This one's for the ladies, of course. And 10 years after that, he launched the squishy hat, which could be rolled up for travel and then spring back to its original shape undamaged. Now, any of you ladies or any of you guys that travel with ladies know that being able for them or you to take a large straw hat and be able to fold it and travel is ecstasy because otherwise you've got these hats which look wonderful but impossible to travel with so that hat which was first introduced in 1995 is now widely recognized as having changed the course of women's headwear market men don't have any really fundamentally outstanding cool inventions that have changed changed our clothing um so I'm waiting for that. But the concept evolved into an extensive collection of packable accessories, handbags added in 97, coordinating footwear in 2001, and most recently, small leather accessories like wallets and wristlets. Eric has been honored for his outstanding design achievements by being named Hat Designer of the Year and Hat Designer of the Decade, 1990 to 1999, a member of the Council of Fashion Designers of America, and some of his designs were in the archives of the Metropolitan Museum of Art's Costume Institute. And a lot of smoking hot people wear these. My wife at the head of that pack. But what's especially cool is that she had ordered some, my wife, and they came expeditiously and beautifully packaged and exceeded expectations. They're, n they're not overly expensive. They're astonishing. And um, just popped an Instagram thank you over to Mr. Javits, who responded post-haste personally. And like I said at the beginning, when people communicate and respond and appreciate and thank and respond, what what is better in the world? And that is why our politics in the U.S. is so messed up, because people don't appreciate, they don't communicate, they don't thank, and they're not grateful. They're more hateful on every side, and hateful is not grateful. So uh, kudos to Eric Javits. And uh, check out some of these hats in the show notes. They're gorgeous. If I ever uh, had a, a sex change operation, which I won't be doing, but there's nothing wrong with that, I, uh, I'd i be going for these hat, hats in, in bags in a heartbeat. They're just, they're just amazing. No, don't worry. Don't worry. Okay. It's still... Uh, Bobby Galinsky. It's not going to Barbie Galinsky at this point. Although I still get a lot of mail. I still get a lot of posts to Barbie Galinsky. And I think it's because my name, especially here in Australia, they say, what's your name? You know, you're talking to them on the phone. They go, Bobby. And they write down Barbie because that's what they hear. And um, it's my accent in their ears. Don't forget, one problem in Australia is they still consider the letter H. Some people call it H. There's nothing that annoys me more than people that say H, especially if it's a teacher. That is absolutely a sign of Stone Age education. There is no H. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P. Q, R, S, and T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. Blah, 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 blah. Now, your podcaster has been very thirsty 
while thinking about, you know, all of this couture and, you know, out of season clothing and stuff like that in the hot weather the other day brought out the Negroni machine, me being the machine, the Negroni being my favorite Segway drink from spring to summer and what your podcaster is drinking. Now, if you've never made one, quite easy, 30 mils of gin. And uh, for me, I like Hendrix gin. Hendrix has a has a distinct taste to it, as does Four Pillars, and it works very well in the Gronies, as opposed to a, a generic gin like Gordon's or something like that. Uh, 30 mils of gin, 30 mils of Campari, 30 mils of Rosso Vermouth, very important, and a very fresh orange peel to garnish with ice. You take the ingredients, put them in an ice-filled whiskey, whiskey glass, and stir well. And oh my God, it's... It's strong enough to be like a winter spirit, just to give you some nice warmth, but light enough and sweet enough just to let you know the hint of summer is around there and you're right in the middle of spring. It is the ultimate equinox type of drink. And uh, when I haven't been drinking those, which of course is not every waking moment, I have delved back into Chardonnay. Yes, Chardonnay. Yeah, give me a Chardy. Give me a Chardy. The absolute personal favorite right now is the 2019 Giant Steps Sexton Vineyard Chardonnay. It scores a 91 out of 100. It's buttery and complex, and it is just fantastic. I wanted, kind of felt like a big wine the last last week. Not a soft block, not a raisin, nothing like that. It just felt like big, big wine, and uh, it's a great like 1980s feeling chardonnay and um they run you know about 50 to 60 bucks you want to have it sit out for a little bit don't want it too ice cold in my opinion and i am not a sommelier but uh i am an avid drinker of tasty things and uh that's kind of ebbed and flowed across the kitchen bench and the outside because we were able to eat outside the other day after i stained the courtyard table again because it was warm enough finally and um stained it or oiled it sorry oiled it to be uh, specific a little bit of sanding a little bit of oiling and uh it shine 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 next week i'll hit you up with a couple of 10 to 12 dollar wines that i'm finding pretty amazing Well, if you can go to the movies, good for you. But for those of us here in Victoria where it's still closed, we're still delving into anything we can find online. So I had to go back in the past and uh, went relatively back into the past to 2002. And I watched for about the sixth time, The 25th Hour. The 25th Hour is a drama film directed by Spike Lee, one of my favorite directors, one of my least favorite people as far as politics, but once again, how I can separate the artiste from the philosophy. Um, and he's a legend. And, um, oh God, I love Spike Lee films. And uh, and I would like to have him at my dinner party, actually. I would love to have him at my dinner party, which I've talked about, I believe, in episode two and four, which I do every night for a few moments before I go to bed. That's my table of seven people, all from 
diverse areas of the globe, living and dead, and I have this conversation and speak with entities, living and dead, and I do speak with them, and I channel them and and um, play out scenarios and issues and questions and stuff. It's it's my time travel, and I'm dead serious. If you've just tuned into the podcast for the first time, I've been doing this for 25 years, and uh, you might check through some of the earlier episodes. The dinner party is one of the most exhilarating meditations, probably the only meditation I really do. And Spike Lee, I think I'm going to add him in. For I haven't had any changes in years, and I'm going to add him into the dinner party this coming week. Just just thinking about it right here. Anyway, I digress a, a bit. Um, it's a 2002 film. It stars Edward Norton, one of the 10 best actors of all time. I think totally underrated. One of the 10 best of all time. And it's adapted by David Benioff from his own novel, 25th Hour, which tells the story of a man's last 24 hours of freedom as he prepares to go to prison for seven years for dealing drugs. And some critics named it one of the best films of the decade. And imagine if you were convicted of something you may or may not have done. I'm not going to spoil it but you knew you were going to prison. You had 24 hours left with your family, your friends, whatever. Um, Toby Maguire produced it with Spike Lee and Julia Chessman and John Killick. And Edward Norton's in it. Philip Seymour Hoffman, one of his fantastic roles. Barry Pepper, Rosario Dawson. She's astonishing. Anna Paquin and the irreplaceable Brian Cox, who we all know as... um, the dad, dear old dad on Succession. There's nothing Brian Cox isn't good in. And uh, the performances are astonishing. The music is astonishing. And uh, if you haven't seen this film, you must see it. I, I really, it's, it's quite astonishing because it really triggers a lot of things about what's right, what's wrong, good people going to prison, bad people not going to prison, things like that. And uh, it's very, very powerful. Very powerful. Um, Catch it. Catch it online. Now, something else in our world of entertainment. Good night, Mr. Bond. I expect you to die. Mr. Bond did die. We lost James Bond this week. And um, Sean Connery. Sean. Sean who I would love to play the penis mightier, the pen is mightier, Saturday Night Live, Alex Trebek uh, piece, but I could not find it online. It's just suddenly disappeared for some type of copyright reason. But if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. But James Bond was the man, and Sean Connery was the James Bond. And when I was about 12... I had a James Bond secret agent 007 briefcase and it had the gun in it and the secret camera and the, you know, little pointer thing that came out like from Rosa Klebb in her shoes to, to kill people, all kinds of cool stuff. And I would walk around, I'd walk around the house, I'd walk around everywhere in Sioux City and there's a picture of it in the show notes. I thought I was a secret agent. Yes, a short, chubby, Jewish, you know, secret agent with, you know, thick glasses and, you know, um, saddle shoes. But nevertheless, I was James Bond when I had that. I wanted to be a secret agent. I thought it would be so cool. And um, we'll miss Sean Connery. There was only one. There was only one. Goodbye, Sean. 
So as we kind of get to the pointy end of this show, just a couple of people to call out for excellence. And um, as I said earlier, commitment to excellence is everything. I mean, really, and take this the right way, credit where credit is due, the the Germans, um, they do everything excellent, especially their cars, Porsches, BMWs. Um, As a Jew, I have a symbiotic relationship with the Germans, as I've said before, uh, you know, they kill our people, and we buy their cars and shavers and electrical goods and blenders and such. That's okay. My wife was born in Germany, and she's excellent in everything. It's that German precision, and having a military father, too, I'm quite sure. But as we move on to excellence, there's some people to call out that, uh, you know, you speak to um, looking at things and talking about ideas for the show and getting great stories and just, you know, wandering around and sometimes just in a shop and asking about something and, you know, getting the story on it and uh, the history and things like that. That's That that just is the the pride in, in professionalism. And just uh, a few shout-outs there. You've got uh, Jesse at Tiffany. You've got uh, Jeff at Burberry here in town. Richard and Nick at Montclair. Uh, Nicola at Menards. The beautiful ladies of Kuyong, always, always helpful as the restaurant has opened up in difficult times. Um, Nick and Josh at the Blue Tongue. The best steak we have had in like forever, including our own at home. And that's in Elwood. That's one of the first restaurants I ever went to when I moved to Melbourne. And it's also where I used to hold meetings all the time when I was uh, coaching people in the entertainment industry full time. And it's great to see the Blue Tongue back in Elwood. Unbelievable. Great little micro story there. Uh, I, I used to have meetings there like every day, and it was uh, my spiritual spiritual home, and I used to live uh, nearby. It was a very lucky place for me. Every Everything that um, transpired in there business-wise um, came to fruition. A lot of clients of mine got their film projects or TV projects made after, after meetings there. Really amazing place. Anyway, the guy that uh, used to own it one day just uh, ran, ran into him in the street, and he goes, well, just want to let you know that I've sold it. I go, you sold it? You sold the blue tongue? I go, yeah. And I go, oh, so I just had this horrible feeling, you know, that, you know, things were going to change. I didn't want didn't want change. And he goes, oh, the new owners are pretty great and uh, should be awesome. And I go, well, I hope so. Otherwise, I'm going to burn the place. Anyway, that night they had a fire, a significant fire, and it closed the restaurant. Um, now, that was horrible that they had a fire, especially when they just brand new bought it. But um, I just thought the irony of that, I felt like maybe that I'd accidentally put a curse on it or something like that. I felt powerful. But uh, they reopened and completely rejected, and it is astonishing. Astonishing really has to be called out. Can you tell I'm excited about the blue tongue? I feel like a steak right now. But putting your steak into the final chapter of the show, I know you've been waiting. Why hasn't he talked about the election? Because as we go to air today, Friday, I've been trying to put off anything until we do have a decision on the election. And what I have found is that There will never be a decision on the election and the U.S. election. And now it um, has gone from a one-day event 
to a streaming event. So we're going to put it in the entertainment section next week because it'll still be going. And the week after that, um, each day, a new chapter streaming on your channel, every channel, everywhere, 24-7. Exciting chapters such as Wisconsin, how leads evaporate in mysterious Votes exceed the amount of people in the county. Michigan can half wit Whitmer overcome outgoing or incoming or reelected or expunged President Trump. Will Joe Biden take it out? Will it go to the Supreme Court? What will happen? It is like an episode of Dallas Dynasty, Greenleaf 24, and... Um, just a little bit of Lovecraft country and Ozarks all wrapped in the one. So many exciting players. And we're going to see how it plays out. This one will probably be going to the Supreme Court, folks. It's a weird one. And it's a weird one. And no matter what side you look at it, there's improprieties on both sides. Um, I'm not even going to go into them. I was hoping to have a decision and reflect on it. But there ain't going to be no decision for a while. So on that note, keep counting those votes, even if it's the same person that's been dead for 20 years, that's voted 40 times, and we'll see you on the other side next week on Friday. Be awesome, be great at everything you do, and don't forget the vote for the podcast award, www.australianpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. And uh, if I win, my head will get bigger than ever. And if I lose, my bitterness and anger at whoever won will be discussed in a future chapter. And a special shout out and blessings to all of our listeners and all of our friends in the UK who've just entered lockdown. We, we've got out of it by and large after, you know, over 120 days. So we know you're going into it in the winter. Blessings. Um, stay strong. Stay healthy. Stay positive. You you got through world wars over there. You can get through this. We'll see you next week. Arrivederci.